in my devotional this week and speaking of worshiping God and how we do that in our lives today and um, this author, I can't remember, George Swinock maybe or Richard Sibbs, I can't remember which one, but he was talking about, you know, as we sit down with the word of God like right now or in the morning in our quiet times or when we hear the word preached from the pulpit, whatever the methodology of that is, do you ever really, I mean, it's just a question of discussion. It has nothing to do with our lesson. I just thought about it. So, um, um, Do you ever really approach it as this is God speaking to me, Tim Brown, or you? Right? Do you ever think of it that way? That should rattle us a little bit, shouldn't it? I mean, you're talking about the creator and sustainer of everything is speaking to me right now through this word this living word. I mean, that's powerful stuff, isn't it? A friend of mine's wife, uh, this has been probably 10, 12 years ago, she passed away having her quiet time. Could you imagine that? You're reading the word of God, God's speaking to you, and the next second you're in his presence. I mean, that would be cool. That's the best. That's got to be one of the top ways to go, <laughs> right? So anyway, we're going to pick up in Colossians 3 this morning again. We're going to read, uh, we covered verses um, 18 and 19 last week on husbands and wives. And I hope um, that was encouraging to you as it was to me, particularly, I guess I'm speaking to the men, the way that we're supposed to be loving our wives. But we're going to go through chapter 4, verse 1 this morning. So Colossians 3, 18, wives... Submit to your husbands as fitting in the Lord, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So start starting this morning with the, the short text that contains really the outline here of what brings fullness, the fullness in of life. That's kind of the theme we were on last week, the fullness in a marriage with the fullness of the husband, the fullness of the wife. And, you know, we use the analogy of the uh, bucket overflowing, right, that our lives should be so full that they're overflowing. And Well, now we're, we're going to look at that same thing, the fullness of Christ in our lives uh, in the parent-child relationship. And last week, as we observed the wives, um, this teaching beautifully elevates the position of children in our culture then, to who the recipients in Colossae, but to us as well today, right? I mean, if you think about, remember what we said about how women were really treated then, right? And we know how they're treated in some portions of the world today as well. This is revolutionary to the hearers then, and the, that same way it's revolutionary to, to the, the lives of children then and now. Under a, a section of Roman law, there was a, a, 
it was entitled The Power of the Father, meaning that the father could do anything he wanted to to his children. That sounds pretty strict, doesn't it? Anything he wanted to. He could sell them. He could turn them into slaves. He could, ta- he could even kill them and not be punished with them. That's pretty tough, isn't it? And, uh, I, you know, our society's not that bad with children, but, but maybe turning them into slaves, you know, making them do all our chores for us. But, um, but here, as with the husbands and the wives that we talked about last week, both children and parents were, were presented as under God. And that's the key. That's where we can never get away from that, is the under God, under Christ. And as we're full of Christ in our lives, that should spill over into the lives of our children as we're rearing them. Now, we said nobody's going to the young marriage uh, in here because this is the old group. But, uh, you know, nonetheless, we have, you know, I could say that as grandpa, right, that they should see a difference. Perhaps if, if they're not in a Christian family right now, they should recognize something is very different. And my wife went to the beach the week before last with um, our daughter and granddaughter and uh, one of the granddaughter's friends. You know, so she had the, the opportunity to um, speak into the 16-year-old girl's lives just on the way they were wanting to attire themselves at the beach. You get my drift? And, and Kit, said, Kit said at one point, she said, okay, girls, look. Look how these other girls are dressed, right? And then, yeah, I mean, and that, that we, as grandparents, parents, we should be overflowing Christ into the lives of children at every opportunity we have, right? So what is our example for that? It's, it's the loving fatherhood of God in our lives, isn't it? I mean, if we don't have that, then we can't pass that down to them. So the instructions are given first in our text here in, uh, uh, to the children in verses uh, Colossians 3.20. Children, obey your parents in some things, no, in everything, for this pleases the Lord. The second uh, to the parents in verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So the first thing we should realize here is that discipline is essential if we're to have Christ's fullness in our home, right? Are you okay with that statement? Discipline is essential if we're going to have the fullness of Christ in our homes. Unfortunately, there's where America falls way short. And I, I dare say most of the world falls not godly discipline anyway, right? You might have parents that fly off the handle and they beat their kids senseless, you know, in, when, when they um, sin against the household. But um, unfortunately, we need a lot of work in this area. I, there were some letters that have been published um, between Karl Barth, the, the famous German theologian, and his friend Karl Zuckmeyer, the uh, you know the famous German writer. And l- listen to what Zuckmeyer wrote, quote, If one has lived in America and seen in countless cases what injustice is done to children, one has enough of it. One sees too much that someone hidden behind misunderstood psychoanalytical maxims allows them, listen to this, allows them to become little tyrants 
and ill-humored despots, despots whom adults crawl in front of for pure convenience, only to get peace. And one sees how this takes effect in the unfortunate adolescence when they, brought up without authority, are confronted with the difficulties of life. Wow. Can you, you get that? These foreign observers see the situation as an injustice, right? Not so much to adults, but to children. Isn't that crazy that they would see that? That this is an injustice to the uh, children. And I don't know how many, what the age of y'all's kids, some of y'all's kids I know the age of here, but others I don't. But uh, those younger grandkids come over to our house and, and of course, they want to watch television, right? Because at home, they got chores they got to do before they can use any electronic device. Well, at Nan and Papa's, they don't necessarily have chores before they can look at the iPad or turn the TV on. But have you, have you just perused those shows that the, I don't know what you even call the things, but the... the that, yeah, <laughs> but what goes on there is the adults are the morons, and the kids are in charge, and it's just, I'm, I mean, it's, it's craziness. I, I finally, I just pulled the plug. I said, no, we're not watching that stuff anymore. You know, we just can't do that. You know, turn on ESPN or something. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, they like basketball, so, but you get the point, right? Um because some of those guys are crying like children as well. But, but you know, in this, you know, these, these guys' views are in perfect accord with uh, Hebrews 12, 7 and 8. I'll read that for us. It says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated then you are an Ill, you are illegitimate children and not sons. So basically, I mean that's a good uh, analytical tool for us, right? If we're not being disciplined, then by God we better be checking. Well, am I even a believer? You know. Now, of course, totally off topic here, but um, you know some people believe they can lose their salvation. So my question to them oftentimes has been, well, then. If you lose it, then you're, you're not ever going to be disciplined by God, right? Because you're not a son if you're... So you move in and out of this realm of being a Christian, not being a Christian. And I actually had a pastor and his wife that I counseled one time years ago where this guy was just... this. I mean, he was over-the-top sinful with pornography and, and uh, adulterous affairs. And, and um, he believed that he... he he could lose their salvation. They were Baptists. I can't remember what strain of Baptist it was that that believes that. But nonetheless, you know, he thought that he could move in and out of salvation. So I asked him in one session, I finally said, well, when you're looking at pornography or cheating on your wife uh, with another woman, are you saved or not? You know, I said, so... So then when you're not saved, what you're telling me is you can move over to this category over here and you can do whatever you want. And then you move into salvation and then you're going to come to counseling and try and get it together. And then you're going to sin again, in and out, in and out, right? But that's not the way it works, right? God will discipline the ones he loves, his children. 
and and an evidence of being a child of God is discipline. Now, what does that look like? Does anybody want to share a testimony of a time when they feel like they were being disciplined by God? I mean, did you have a spank mark on your hind end for a couple of weeks, or what was it? You know, what is that? What do you think? Yes, sir. I think I it, it took me out of a job. I was in sales, and we'd go up to Milwaukee, and, and everybody would meet in a bar, and uh, you know everybody would tell dirty jokes, and I'd be in the crowd. And eventually, I quit going down to the bar and mingling with them. And it didn't take long before, you know, I lost the job. And I really, I, he had to take me out of it. I wasn't strong enough to do it on my own. Mm. Good. That's good. Anybody else? What would be another form of God disciplining? The consequences just getting out of hand. You know, uh, decisions you're making, you know, you just really know them. It's just getting too much to, to handle and uh, you're losing things, you know, or even just... Uh, separated out you know you just really feel separated all right so god's stripping things away in order to get you to obey good okay what about a sleepless night because you got into a major argument with your spouse you know the lack of sleep is that it could be god disciplining right until you you know that inner gnawing that you know you got to go to her you know what i mean guys right uh you know hate that that happens, right? Been married 45 years and it 45 in September, but close enough, right? You know, and it still goes on. You know, I mean, isn't that weird? Um, you've heard me say this before. Um, we will treat the person that we know the best, love the most on this earth other than Christ, treat them worse than we would treat our next door neighbor that we don't even know or somebody would pass on the street, right? I mean, I would venture to say, like me, you say things to your spouse in an argument that you would never say to me, or that I would never say to you, right? Isn't that bizarre? And and that's, you know, God disciplines us in those times, right? And to me, it's that conscience that just won't leave you alone. You know you got to do something. And, yeah, so... The absence of discipline means fatherhood is not being practiced. Now, take that. If the absence of God's discipline in our lives means fatherhood is not being practiced, then that take that to our, our families, right? Fatherhood is not being practiced when the father is not disciplining his child, right? Shows a lack of love, a lack of love. Discipline is therefore a key to child-parent fullness as we said before so it's interesting to note that many psychologists are finding more evidence that discipline is indeed the great ingredient of domestic fullness isn't that weird psychologists are showing that discipline is the evidence of great uh, domestic fullness so quote from a an associate professor of psychology and like I said last week, I've got to give the disclaimer every time I say something from the world of psychology. 
I don't embrace it. Our church doesn't embrace it. However, they've got the money. They can do great research, and we can glean from some of those researches that they do, right? So this is a quote from Dr. Stanley Coopersmith. Um, he said, he was an uh, associate professor at uh, <coughs> University of California. He surveyed 1,738 normal middle-class boys and their families. My question was, well, what about the girls? You know, boys, beginning in the pre-adolescent period and following them through to young manhood. After determining the the boys with the best self-esteem, he then compared their homes and childhood influences with those of the boys having a lower sense of self-esteem. Now, you know, we don't put any emphasis, you know, I'm not, uh, what's the word? I'm not boistering self-esteem to build your kids up, but this is just an interesting study. He found three important characteristics which distinguished them. One, the high-esteemed children were clearly more loved and appreciated at home than were the low self-esteem boys. The parental love was deep and genuine, not just an empty display of words. Uh, Two, the high-esteemed group came from homes where parents had been significantly more strict in their approach to discipline. By contrast, the parents of the low self-esteem group had created insecurity and dependence by their permissiveness. And then thirdly, the homes of the high-esteem group were also characterized by democracy and openness. Once the boundaries for behavior were established, there was freedom for individual personalities to grow and develop. All right, so discipline and obedience are are indispensable. We, We agree with that. We know that. And if we're to experience the fullness of, that God wants in our homes, we have to teach our children this. We have to discipline them. The command is to obey. And, I mean, if you look, um, it says, children, obey your parents. And I think that, that word obey is very significant for two reasons. First, it's a different word than the word we looked at last week for wives in submitting to their husbands. That word suggests a voluntary submission to the husband. It's a choice the wife makes. Now, she's commanded by God to do it, but it's a choice that she makes. Here, the command is, is really more absolute than submit. And, and then the other reason this word is significant is that it really consists of two words, which are listen under. Listen and under. And literally, that could be translated, listen under your parents. Really listen to your parents and do it. That's what it means, right? Common phrases in America that we hear today are, are you listening to me? Did you hear what I said? Do you ever listen to me? Now listen to me, right? So obedience begins with listening, doesn't it? But if you're saying it like that to the kid, you've probably just shut them off. But implicit in this also is just, not just learning and doing, but doing with the right attitude. You know what that's like, right? You know the little boy that teacher tells him to go sit in the corner, and you know, and he's sitting there, and he said, "Well, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm sure standing up on the inside, right?" This is all about boys. Girls, y'all are just too innocent and easygoing, never get in trouble, right? My wife and I were we we just laughed because our daughter-in-law and son, they've got all girls and and one boy. They adopted 
twins from Uganda, and one of them uh, was a boy and one a girl. But that's still, is it like uh, five girls and a boy? So, <clears throat> you know, she'll say something, gosh, I never knew. I mean, he's a real boy. You know, like the other day they were at my house and uh, the dog got a snake. Well, who do you think's got the snake next? You know, so I take a picture of it and text it to her and she's like, yuck, you know. <laughs> but, uh, or, you know, diving off of things, you know, getting hurt all the time because, you know, you, you know, you know what it is with boys. Yeah. So just wired different, right? So, you know, there are... Um, this text tells children that this is to be done in everything. Are there any exceptions to the everything? Well, yes, right? And, you know, we are to obey God rather than men, uh, Acts 5.29. We're, we're never to ask our kids, just like with husband and wife we talked about last week, to go against their conscience um, or, or to go against what Scripture tells them, right? It's not... Uh, it's not a command that we, we can't command our children to sin or violate their conscience. Now, you know, we're not, we're probably talking about younger kids here because with teenagers, um, I taught a session in Birmingham um, Friday on um, uh, counseling parents of rebellious teens, and they'll interpret this totally. They're wise and crafty enough at this point to uh, throw that back at you. Well, my conscience, you know. You got, so you got to be careful with that. We're talking about younger kids here. I think you know, that's a whole different story with, with teenagers. Um, or actually, as I taught the class, that's the wrong word. They're young adults now, and they need to be treated as young adults, not as children. So, but scripture, uh, uh, the scripture before us tells us that this obedience pleases the Lord, and that's where we ad- address young children's hearts. You know, my wife and I... I just use us as examples because we don't have kids in the home. So when the grandkids come over and one of them does something that is sinful, we sit down and tell them, you know, what you just did, does that was that pleasing to the, to the Lord? You know, address that portion of their heart causes them to start to think of, you know, and when they're young like ours are right now, they're a little more sensitive to that, aren't they? You know, they, uh, which is a, a good thing. I think that childlike faith, right? Um, so we, we, a parallel passage is Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, um, which says, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. So the point is we have here a simple and powerful command to all children to uh, from the heart to obey their parents. And neglect of this command, of course, brings great sorrow. Uh, If not now, certainly later in life, right? But if obeyed, it brings fullness. And I think that's Paul's theme here that we've been looking at is that we want this fullness in the Christian marriage and the Christian relationship and the home between parents and children. Well, the other half of that command in verse 21 is fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, I read that there's, there's two ways to break a horse, right? One is, is the progressive preferred method, the progressive method. You know, you put a halter on them and you kind of just lead them around with, the, what do they call that thing, a lunge line or something. You know, just get them used to that. You know, then you put a bit in there and 
work that thing for a while. Then you put a blanket on their back, you know, they get used to that. Then you put a saddle on their back and eventually you get on, right? And you, you've, what you've done is you've quieted the spirit of a, of a horse, which is, that's a big task. I know a young lady here in Woodstock that there's a, a, an organization that you could actually get a wild Mustang. They'll send it to you. She had one sent to her. They have a barn over here off East Cherokee. And her responsibility is to break that Mustang. And she's using this methodology right here. That's been proven to work pretty well. Well, the other way, uh, if the horse is a little more difficult, it's a simple method. It's not progressive. It's very simple. You take a two-by-four and you knock the horse on the head and knock him to his knees. You know, and there's people that do that, right? Uh, and it's said that a horse really can be tamed that way, but great cost involved because you're going to have a spiritless animal that may be obedient, but it's going to be a miserable old plug of a horse, right? And there's children like that. You know, if we knock them to their knees with discipline and, and punishment, they're going to, you're going to, we're going to break them. And that's not the proper way. The proper way is the way you train a horse, the, uh, the steps that are taken to conform them into the image of Christ. But um, their spirits, have, you know, if children's spirits have been broken, um, they may be obedient, but they're missing something, right? So Paul tells us in verse 21 what happens when we do that. He, he says that fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. I like the New American Standard there better. I think it says uh, they lose heart. You know what I mean? They lose heart. They become discouraged. They lose heart. And they withdraw. They keep it all inside. Or they rebel when they get big enough to rebel. And the results are painful either way you look at it, right? So his advice to parents here is to avoid that trap by don't provoke your children. Now, notice, where's mom? You know, it says fathers. And I, you know, who knows why Paul wrote fathers. I certainly don't. Maybe some of y'all do, but... Um, I think, though, you know, in our culture today, the way we could look at this is the dads are typically more, uh, are, are not in touch as much with the children as mom is, right? Dad typically is going to be the one that's going to be out away from the home more than the kids are. And, and he, he's going to maybe judge by what he sees when he comes home at the end of the day. The specific use of, of the Greek word here is to irritate your children by nagging them or by putting them down, right? I, I, you know, if you heard the statement, somebody get mad. I used to know a guy like this. He's saved now. He wasn't then. And I remember it used to drive my wife and I crazy when they would invite us over for dinner and we would go over there and his kids would start acting up or talking and he would just scream at them and tell them, you know, you need to be quiet. Children are to be seen and not heard. You know, I mean, that's not good, right? That's what, that, that's provoking, right? In uh, Ephesians 6, 4, another parallel passage that says, fathers do not ex- exasperate your children and it has that same idea of irritating them through perpetual fault finding. You know, we're we're bad of uh, with kids of using really poor communication in that we we tend to use hundred percent words when we're disciplining. Right? You always really know. I'm sure there's been a time when they didn't. 
Or every time I ask you, well, maybe probably not every time, right? Granted, 99.999, but, <laughs> you know, and that's a common one in marriage counseling as well, by the way. You know, the, you know, you never take me out. Really? We've been married how long? We've never gone out? So, anyway. Um, so, we don't nag. John Newton, um, listen to this um, quote from him. Uh, he had a wretched life, as we know, before turning to Christ. And he says, I know that my father loved me, but he did not seem to wish me to see it. What a travesty, huh? Did not wish me to see it. Discipline is to be given, but it, but so is encouragement. We've got to remember that. So obedience is nurtured by love and praise, right? Children, I mean, take us at the, on the job. You know, you get a compliment from the boss. Does that inspire you to act out more or to do a better job? It inspires you to do a better job, right? Same thing with kids is they're encouraged. And, and um, you know, we could give all kinds of examples of that, right? <laughs> but, you know, the, another kind of father is the guy that is, uh, you know, that, who ex- uh, upsets the apple cart with the kids all the time is given to irritability and grouchiness. And, you know, again, you see this at the workplace and it just bleeds into the home. Children lose heart when parents aren't, um, when dad comes home and he's not loving and kind to his kids. And uh, the old cartoon you've seen, you know, where the boss is grouchy to me all day long on the job. And so I come home and I'm mad and upset and irritable with my kids. And my son gets mad and he goes over and kicks the dog the dog runs out the door and bites the first guy that he sees who's the boss, right? <laughs> it just keeps going and going. So, you know, those, the bucket wasn't full at work and it spilled out and it came back there. So we we, we got to never let our pressures drive us into that unhappy circle of discontentment in the home. Um, I see it in my job over and over of that's when substance abuse comes into play, you know, um, the Dad it just gets so frustrated, screams at the wife and the kids, slams the door, out the door he goes, you know, burns rubber to leave in the driveway. Um, that's a personal experience story, too, by the way. So the house we lived in um, before I was saved had burnt rubber up and down in front of the house as I would leave in a rage. So, you know, we, we have to uh, not be harsh or over-strict with rules as well. They need rules, they need guidelines, but not harsh and over-strict, right? Parents should be looking for opportunities, get this now, this is a toughie, to say yes to as many things as we can say yes to, right? We're so quick to, no, you know, but we need to be able to say yes to as many things as we can. And, you know, dads in particular are very capricious with inconsistencies, right, over and over again. You know, the think of this, back to our horse riding analogies, you know, what is a horse to think when the guy sitting in the saddle has his spurs dug in and he's pulling back on the reins? You know, am I supposed to go or stop? Go or stop, go or stop. You know, well, that's how we are with our kids when we're inconsistent. They don't know what to do. So they pretty much then are going to do whatever they want to do, have to be consistent. Now, that doesn't mean that we can never change our minds, of course, as we gather more information or 
probably uh, as we go talk to our spouse and say, well, I told them this, you know, and they get, you know, that thing, they get to playing on each other. But probably um, one of the most um, exasperating things a parent can do is to keep their children at a distance. They can't be, you know, pushed away. And an off-quoted survey says that fathers get this, spend an average of 37 seconds a day per child. How could that be? Now, of course, we know then that's probably sitting in the living room and not talking to them or not being involved in their lives because, I mean, you can't be in the home with the kid and not spend more than 37. You know what I mean? But that means not being involved in their lives, right? And to refrain from discipline is really an act of, of, an act of hate to our own kids. And at the same time, discipline has to be given with encouragement. So some of you with children... Walk us through. How do you discipline? Give us an example. Uh, are you patient? Irritable? Strict? Over strict? All right. I know some of y'all got kids. Irritable sometimes. All right. You're too old now. No. Go ahead. And look at you now. <laughs> One thing that's remarkable about my dad is that he would get inordinately angry with me. Because I know it's probably because I was hard to deal with. But we would get in these huge arguments really bad up and through teenage years. And then, uh, but every single time he would come down and, and you know, he would come down and sit with me even apologize first and then we have a great you know ending at the mm-hmm. night. I don't know how many times that happened but that was just his way of making up for it mm-hmm. trying to do redo it in a way right. even though I could, could have been the one who you know instigated the whole thing you know so I always admired him for that I look yeah. back alright yes sir I, was, I thought you were going to say, I thought you were going to say a kudzu vine. <laughs> we had good grapevines. They sort of, when you, when you go get a good long grapevine, they sort of wrap around your legs mm-hmm. and twist you, you know. There you go. So, Muscadine vine. That's against the law these days. You'd be arrested for abuse and everything else now. Mm. All right, some of you young ones that got kids, walk us through it. I think for, for us, there are definitely times where something and didn't communicate with staff or staff <coughs> something and so there definitely is are areas where the kids may get confused based on that but I think what's been important for us is even in those moments to just explain to the kids that hey we made a mistake mm-hmm. you know, we are entirely imperfect and you know we want you to voice kind of where you are it was interesting I sat down with Randy a couple years ago we were dealing with uh, our youngest was lying a good bit stealing stuff at school and we sat down with Randy and Randy goes listen when kids are young, and he drew this little X, Y, you know, chart, and he said, when kids are young, you don't have to rationalize why you are disciplining or why you are telling them to do something. 
Um, that happens as they grow in age. So the more they grow in age, the more you rationalize and explain the why. Whereas when they're younger, it's just simply do this, and they're almost like pets. Do this because I said so, mm -hmm. right? And that's been really helpful for us as they are now growing into those 11 and 10 and nine you know, ages. Like we can explain to them why and they understand that now. Um, you know, but I think, you know, a loving discipline, you know, there are expectations that are, are set and, you know, and being consistent to your point of, we expect these expectations to happen. Mm -hmm. You get up in the morning, brush your teeth. If you don't, there is discipline. You know, even those yeah. simple things like that, so. Yeah. Anybody else want to share on that? You know, as a rebellion, when they become teenagers, <clears throat> of course, the, what you're talking about there, those principles are somewhat the same in that the first um, thing that needs to be done is for the parent to go and confess to the child, right? And that, you know, we sinned by not whatever, and then that that kind of levels the ground because we oftentimes, in fits of anger, towards our teenage children will, you know, portray an elevation that we're better than you, you know, that we don't mess up or whatever. But So that's, that's good to always keep that level, right? All right. Child discipline. It's a good thing, right, because it shows love. Um, it shows love. Uh, <clears throat> so... We've explored the theme of domestic fullness. I was going to say, <laughs> not violence. <laughs> domestic fullness. Uh, domestic violence, what's the first thing you do? Nine, one, one. Okay. Domestic fullness. And we've, we've um, seen how Christ brings this fullness to the relationship between the husband and wife last week, the fathers and the children. So now moving forward, uh, how Christ extends his fullness to masters and slaves. So let's read verse 22 through 4.1. <clears throat> Bond servants, servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, <clears throat> not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So Paul's teaching, again, um, was accompanied here by a great, great amount of tension for several reasons. Again, you know, as the wives, this was revolutionary teaching for the wives of this era, it's revolutionary teaching for the children of this era and now for the slaves, right? Um, because amazingly, the, the vast extent of slavery at this time, this was dumbfounding to me as I, as I read this. Um, but the historians tell us that there were approximately 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. About half the population were slaves, Right. And because of this, work was considered below, uh, work was considered below the dignity of the slave, slave owner themselves, the free man, if you will. And, and practically everything was done by the slaves, even doctoring and teaching. The, though there there were some appropriate relationships between masters and slaves at this time, but 
basically the lot of the slave was not a happy lot. And I dare say, you know, in any situation where there's slavery involved, uh, that would be the case. And Aristotle classified slaves as things. He called them living tools. And then the Roman uh, Varro, who died in 27 BC, classified farm implements into three classes. Listen to this. The articulate, the inarticulate, and the mute. The articulate being the slaves. Farm tools, right? And later, uh, a Roman writer recommended um, when you buy a farm, you toss out the old slaves to die because they're broken tools. And some of the people did that. Gaius, a Roman lawyer, said, "We, we may note that it is universally accepted that the master possesses the power of life and death over a slave. If a slave ran away, he was branded on the forehead with the letter F for fugitive and sometimes even put to death with absolutely no trial. And so the situation of slaves in general was not very good, right? And it was really terrible uh, for a lot of them. And the the preaching of Christianity, again, uh, of the gospel with its explicit doctrine of equality and just levels that tension as... Uh, we looked at a couple of weeks ago in uh, chapter 3, verse 11, where Paul said, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in, in all. Galatians 3.28, of course, <clears throat> There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. So, if any of y'all read that book, uh, 12 Years a Slave, or seen the movie, um, of course, like all things, the movie's not near as good as the book. Um, you, you, you really ought to read the book. Um, I mean, you, you may throw up while you read it. It's horrific, horrific. But it's an autobiography. Solomon Northrup, maybe, um, was the guy. And he was uh, living in New England with his wife and black guy. And, and um, <clears throat> he got kidnapped, is a short story, and sold into the he got tricked because he worked his normal jobs but then he was also a very gifted musician and played the violin and he got duped into um, uh, his work was slow and uh, he got duped in by these uh, people that would go and kidnap people and drug them and then sell them on the slave market and then told them they hired him to play at a party and then they gave him some kind of a drug that knocked him out. Next thing he woke up in a, you know, and for 12 years he was a, sold into slavery. And I, I'm, I mean, when you read that book, I mean, it, it's just, you know, I don't know. I don't know how you, I don't know how anybody could be a Christian. I just, you know, we don't have that in our culture and society today. So I just, I don't know. There's just no way that you could go and worship God on a Sunday when you're treating another human being, regardless of their color, that way. just can't happen, right? I mean, you all agree with that? I just, I can't see it. There's no comprehensible way that that could could be. But then I'm reminded of, when I start thinking like that, if right here in our state, the state of Georgia, in 1996, I visited a church, I was asked to give my testimony at a church down in South Georgia 
my wife and I went and um and um it was um a revival of a Southern Baptist church down there, a small one, and we were at First Baptist at the time, and this church would call First Baptist and they would send some of the deacons down there to do revivals, and that's why I, how I ended up there. So I said to the chairman of the deacons, you know, after the dinner and the service, I said, you know, I didn't see many young people in the crowd tonight, mostly an older congregation, huh? And uh, he said, yeah, and I said, there's not many young people in town, and he said, well... And I kind of interrupted that, and I said, because I I saw a college on the way in, you know, a small college, but nonetheless a school. And um, and I said, I figured, you know, why aren't some of those students in here? Y'all got any kind of campus outreach or anything? Well, it's 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 mostly a black college. Well, you know, and and this guy can't, I couldn't believe what I heard. The next words out of his mouth were, the deacons have said that, that we're not going to allow any blacks in the church. We're going to close the doors. This was in 1996, right? For you young people, that might not seem so long. I mean, it might seem like a long time ago, but not for me, right? You know what I told the guy? Kit, she got freaked out. I said, buddy, you need to go back and tell the deacons, close the doors and burn it down because God's not here. And, uh, you know, and then I had another young man, a, a prominent First Baptist Church in a South Georgia town. Same year, he, this young man was an intern for me at this mission place I was working. And uh, this guy told me, he said, the deacons are voting. My parents, I talked to them this week. The deacons are voting if, whether or not to allow blacks into the church. I mean, mid-90s. Right? I mean, are you kidding me? Southern Baptist Church under the Southern Baptist Convention. What? I don't get that. You know, so anyway, um, if you want a great little video to watch, uh, Ken Ham's One Race is phenomenal. I love that video. You know, we call ourselves white. Well, this one's white. I ain't there. I don't know. Is there anybody in here that would match up to that? I don't think so, you know. And the the blacks call themselves black. I've never seen a black person that color, right? That's not, we're one race, right? One race, God has created all of us. And and uh, so the, the slave thing just doesn't compute for me. I can't get there. I don't like it. Um, but anyway, um, I wasn't, none of that was in my notes. I wasn't going <laughs> to say any of that, but... There you go. Um, but anyway, so we don't have slaves today. So, of course, the teaching you've heard as well as I have, that this kind of goes with um, boss-employee type of relationships, right? Masters are our bosses. We're, you know, we're serving them. We're the employees. And, um, you know, it's, this is a big deal because even today, the average worker still divides five or six days, however many you you work into more or less equal periods of time, right? We say we work 40 hours, and, and then we're, we're off for about eight hours doing whatever we do, squirrel hunting or fishing or something, you know, and, and then we sleep for eight hours, right? And that's kind of how it goes. So we, we know that this is important to our society because we, most people are defined by what? What they do, right? 
we, we really, I mean, we're in Sunday school. We really ought to say by their faith, but yeah, by what they do, right? By what they do for a living. And, and so there, there's a relationship that there is the husband wife has to have the fullness of Christ, the parent child, the fullness of Christ, the employer employee, the fullness of Christ as well. And if you think of, you know, a company like who works here for a, a company that has more than 10 employees? Lots, right? Okay, um, so if there's 10 employees, are most of them married? Yeah, probably. So there's 20. Each one got a kid. There's 30. That's a small church that the owner of that business has the opportunity to share the gospel with, to witness to, right? And I think we're missing a big thing in our churches today if we're not, you know, talking to businessmen in that manner. Then take a company with 100, right? Now you're bigger than most churches in America if you multiply that out to three, 400 people. So we want to bring the fullness of Christ into whatever we do for a living, whether we're an employee or an employer, right? And so the commands are there again in verse 22 and 23 to, um, you know, to obey in everything uh, the, the person that you're working for. Of course, you know, we know that that is... Um, in um, not causing us to sin again like the other relationships. But, you know, this command is, uh, I, I love the phrase, not by the way of eye services, people pleasers. You know, that's the that's the guy that, you know, um, I used to, uh, well, I won't say that. Um, the, you know, that's the guy that in gym class, you know, when the coach is looking at you, you're pounding the push-ups, perfect form, and just knocking them out, right? But as soon as the coach looks, goes on down the line a little bit, you know, you're kind of, you're looking and you're just hanging there, right? That kind of thing, you know, or the, the boss, uh, you know, you know, you're, when the boss sitting around, you know, he's out playing golf or whatever, you know, you go to lunch for two and a half hours and those kind of things, you know, that we're not doing it the right thing just because the boss is there. We're doing the right thing because it pleases the Lord for us to do it and, you know, we're verses 23 and 24, we're working heartily as for the Lord. We're not working for the man that we're employed by, right? I mean, you, you see, um, have you ever known or read about somebody that, that's just taking a task and they're just performing it? The lowly, menial task, right? They're just doing it. I read of a guy named Brother Lawrence. I can't, when did he live? Does anybody remember in the 600s or something? And, I don't remember, maybe it was 1600s, but he was a monk that was a, a, the, the pot and pan washer in the monastery. You know, probably one of the lowliest jobs you could have, but he, he wrote a book, on, a little booklet on, you know, contentment, right, of staying content in what God has called you to do. You know, it might be, we might call that a nothing task. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, Christian slaves, although this is very interesting, uh, if you read the history of those, that uh, they performed better than the non-Christian slaves. They brought more money on the market, right? And um, it's just because they were understanding these principles that Paul was talking about, and they were working under the Lord, not for the, the boss man. And, you know, that should be the case for us as well, um, a good reward for our labors. So we're about out of time, but... Um, I did find a funny story on this. Let me read this to you. Um, 
this is based on the fact that Christians should be the best workers on the job. All right. And um, this article uh, who said um, an employer, an employer who said that he had become skeptical about Christian employees because of his experience with two theological students who seemed to be always standing around talking about God during work hours. But what really but what really did it was when the boss observed one going to the bathroom for 20 minutes. When the employee emerged, he said to his fellow student, I just had the most wonderful time. I read three t- chapters of John in the John. Get it? Right? <laughs> you know, I mean, wow. So um, Christians ought to be the best attitude at work, the most dependable and the most in- with the most integrity of any employee at the business, right? But sometimes it's just not that way. And um, shame on us when it's not, right? So anybody have any final comments on that? Pardon? Slave? Um, Yeah, the John MacArthur book? Yeah, he... Yeah, I have not read that. Yeah, I heard him preach, you know, a sermon on that one time, but slave. All right.